Welcome to the Weather Pod. I'm Alan Thorpe and I'm an atmospheric scientist. I've worked as a professor of meteorology at the University of Reading, as the head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and most recently as Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. And I'm David Rogers. I'm an oceanographer turned meteorologist, a former chief executive of the UK Met Office, and now a consultant with the World Bank helping countries improve their weather, hydrological and disaster management systems and services. Weather and climate information is a truly international resource involving the work of many individuals and organisations from across the public, private and academic sectors. And this makes up what we call the global weather enterprise. Most importantly, we'll investigate why the effective use of weather data requires the public, private and academic sectors to cooperate, collaborate and form partnerships Using real-life case studies, we'll analyse the successes and the failures and identify the barriers standing in the way of such cooperation for the benefit of all. The weather pod will explore how that information is produced and how and where it is made available. We'll also examine how it's used across the globe to save lives, to make business and society more efficient and to build resilience to the rapidly growing impacts of extreme weather and climate change. As many people know, extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest. So we'll look at how weather and climate information is used by the richer and more developed countries and by the less well-off and less developed ones, which also hosts the largest part of the world's rapidly growing population. We're particularly interested in the ways they use weather and climate information, the differences and the things in common, and the lessons we can learn from each other. In each episode, we'll invite a leading expert to join us here in the studio to discuss a key topic. And alongside this, we'll have a section called Wow, That's Interesting, where we choose a newsworthy story or two about the global weather enterprise. Right, now it's time for Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So, Alan, what have you got for Wow, That's Interesting this week? Climate scientists from the meteorological services of the UK, Netherlands, Germany and France, as well as the University of Oxford, ETH Zurich and the Russian Academy of Sciences, have been getting together to study a very unusual period of heat in the Siberian Arctic. That's a pretty heavy-duty bunch of scientists, so I assume the situation is pretty unusual. It certainly is. Temperatures in Siberia have been well above average since the start of 2020. In fact, a new record temperature for the Arctic, 38 Celsius, was recorded in the Russian town of Koyansk on the 20th of June. And Siberia's overall temperatures were more than 5 degrees above average from January to June. To measure the effect of climate change on these high temperatures, the scientists made use of large collections of computer simulations to compare the climate as it is today, with about 1 degree of global warming, with the climate as it would have been without that human influence. The difference between the two sets of simulations shows what impact human influences have had on Siberian heat. That's really interesting, Alan. So tell us, what have they discovered? Their analysis showed that a prolonged heat, like Siberia experience from January to June this year, would only happen less than once in every 80,000 years without human-induced climate change making it almost impossible in a climate that had not been warmed by greenhouse gas emissions. Almost impossible. So just how much more likely is it that climate change has been responsible for this situation in the Siberian Arctic? Climate change increased the chances of the prolonged heat by a factor of at least 600. 
This is amongst the strongest results of any attribution study conducted to date. So just what have been the consequences of this heat wave? The heat in Siberia has triggered widespread fires, with over a million hectares burning in late June, associated with a release of about 56 million tonnes of carbon dioxide, which is more than the annual emissions of some industrialised countries, such as Switzerland and Norway. It also accelerated the melting of permafrost. An oil tank built on the frozen soil collapsed in May, leading to one of the worst oil spills ever in the region. Longer term, greenhouse gases released by the fires and melting permafrost, as well as decreases in the planet's reflectivity from the loss of snow and ice, will further heat the planet. In addition, the heat has also been linked with an outbreak of silk moths, whose larvae eat conifer trees. WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Today we're going to explore the evolving role of TV and radio weather presenters and meteorologists. It's our great pleasure to welcome Gerald Fleming to the WeatherPod. Hi Gerald. Hi Alan, good to talk to you. Gerald is the former head of the forecast division of Metairon, Ireland's National Meteorological Service, where he was responsible for almost all of its public output. One of his tasks was to oversee and organise Metairon's relationships with RTE, that's Ireland's public broadcasting service, and he appeared often as an on-air broadcast meteorologist with television and radio experience spanning 25 years. As the public face of Metairon, Gerald has contributed frequently to the media and has trained many meteorologists in broadcast meteorology, nationally and internationally, through the World Meteorological Organization's Public Weather Service Programme. Well, welcome again, Gerald, and over to you, David, to start the conversation. In your career, Gerald, you've been part of a tradition of the public broadcasting service, depending on the National Meteorological Service, to provide both content and to deliver the forecast. How important is this relationship and how is it evolving? Yeah, interesting question. I think MET services obviously are funded primarily by the taxpayer and having given that money to the Met Service to create an observing system and all the other bits and pieces, I think it's fair to say that the taxpayer deserves something back, and that is delivered in the form of forecast and warning services. But, of course, you need a medium in order to bring those forecast and warning services to the people. And for many years, the only real media around were state media. When I started broadcasting in the mid-1980s in Europe, I think for most countries it was uh, entirely public service uh, TV and radio broadcasting. Obviously there's been a huge change since then. So partnerships between the National Meteorological Service, who had the information and who needed a method to get to the public, and the National Public Service broadcasters, who had a mission to educate and inform the people, was a pretty natural partnership. Uh, still is in many, I think, in, in pretty well all respects. So it's symbiotic, uh, but of course the broadcaster and the Met Service both have to do a good job to attract the audience because without the audience, uh, it's all meaningless. That's very interesting. Um, if I can come in here, I guess increasingly the, the private sector is, is taking over both roles, uh, both producing content and delivering it uh, via broadcasting. So I was wondering, what do you think is the impact of this change um, on broadcast meteorology and perhaps also on the public's perception of National Meteorological Services. I think the advent of private sector broadcasting, uh, which came before private sector meteorology, certainly in Europe, 
uh, is be, has been good in that it's it's brought competition and it's caused both parties, national uh, public service broadcasters and private sector broadcasters, to up their game because there's competition, competition for the market, competition for the audience, um, and I do think public service broadcasters should aim to be as good as the best, as let's say the BBC did in the UK for, for many years and still aims to do, and RTE in Ireland also, because you can't really be in the business unless you're aiming to be uh, as good as just about everybody else that there is out there and better, hopefully, than most. So with the private broadcasters coming into the market, the public obviously have a greater range of choice. And in some ways, it's a bit like newspapers. Uh, there's newspapers, uh, let's say, in the UK, um, going from the Financial Times and the Telegraph through to the Daily Mirror and the Sun. And there's something for everybody, I suppose, in terms of where your interests lie or, or what your uh, your desires are in terms of what you want to read in the morning. And it's a bit the same with broadcasters. There's different styles of broadcasting. There are the more uh, data, information-driven, serious, uh, political, economic type of broadcast uh, stations. There's those which are music-driven. There's those which aim purely to entertain and do nothing else. And whether broadcasters can fit into all of those in different ways, uh, in the public service broadcast tradition, we tend to focus primarily on getting the information over and really not doing too much in terms of the entertaining side. But you need to entertain in the context of keeping people's attention. Uh, Of course, there are other weather broadcasters where, in a sense, the weather broadcast is just a vehicle for the ego of the presenter, uh, not the type that I particularly enjoy. And you see them primarily in the private sector, but you see them in both, actually. Gerald, can you give us a sense of how popular you think weather broadcasting actually is with the public and other audiences, both on, on, well, on the TV, on the radio and, and the web? It's actually probably far more popular than we realise. And I know uh, in RTE it was a kind of an open secret that the weather broadcast at the end of the main evening news actually attracted a higher audience than the news itself, which the journalists in the newsroom didn't like very much, but they were um, honest enough to admit that that was the case. Uh, because the weather is meaningful to everybody all of the time. You know, we got something of a sense of that going back uh, 20 years ago now, more than 20 years, slightly more than 20 years, when our our, uh, broadcaster, RTE, decided for reasons of its own that it would remove the meteorologists from air and replace them with presenters. And there was a huge backlash from the Irish public, uh, and we got lots of mail and and there was lots of newspaper articles and the like. Uh, And we realised the popularity of it. You know, you go into an empty studio and weather broadcasters these days work in a kind of a strange environment where you go into an office, you prepare your charts, you walk into a studio, which is completely automatic. In some ways, you don't speak to a soul from one end of the day to the other. And yet you're speaking to maybe millions of people through the camera. Uh, So you've no real sense of how that is being uh, accepted at the other end, how many people are watching you, all that kind of stuff. You're just going and doing your job. So on occasions like that, you realise that, in fact, what you're doing is very, very popular. Um, and it's the same with websites. The weather websites are very popular. Unfortunately, we maybe we have a huge range of them, um, and people are rather confused sometimes as to which are good and which are not good, and each has their own favourites. But by and large, if you launch a weather website uh, with good information, it will get a good audience pretty quickly. WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I'd I'd like to take us on, um, Gerald, if I may, to what I think is a major change in forecasting, which has been the introduction of ensemble predictions that lead to probabilistic forecasts. And in fact, I think you can argue that modern forecasting is really 
fundamentally probability-based. And it's sometimes said that the, the public struggle to understand probabilistic forecasts. I wondered if you'd, you'd agree with that. And, and has broadcast meteorology managed this change to probabilistic forecasts effectively? I think people have some underlying understanding of risk. And of course, this goes back very much, if you want to talk in evolutionary terms, to the sort of risks we, we had to um, consider when there was various predators stalking the land, saber-toothed tigers and the like, and we had this fight-or-flight type thing, which we still have uh, an element of it built into us from from evolution. But, of course, the risks now that we face in, in the world are much more um, difficult, I suppose, to assess in some ways. And yet people do have a, an understanding of them. I mean, in my own country, where horse racing is very... A popular pursuit. Uh, people don't have any difficulty about logging on or going down to the bookies and assessing the odds and putting their money on whichever horse they think has the greatest likelihood of giving them a return. So in that context, at least, and in many others, people have some assessment, uh, inherent assessment of risk, even if it's not, if you like, as mathematically um, complete as those of us who come from a scientific and mathematical background might uh, might have or might wish to have. Do, do you think the weather forecasters... Um, are, spend enough time to try and describe those probabilities and, and um, provide an understanding of what they mean? I think there's different ways of communicating probabilities. Uh, I, I'll go back to that occasion when, when we had uh, a situation when we were taken off air and we got lots of mail. And I remember one of the people writing in, and it was a little bit scary actually reading it, saying that you know they knew from the way we talked about the weather whether we were really confident in what was happening or not confident. So they were taking a message of probability from the way it was presented. Now, ideally, as scientists, we would hope, hope to go better than that and, and you know, ascribe some sort of numerical value, as in a 2 in 10 chance or a 3 in 10 chance or a 7 in 10 chance, whether that would actually go down with the people. There's no reason to expect it wouldn't. Uh, it would require some education, maybe. But I think we haven't really... Uh, successfully faced that challenge yet as a weather broadcast profession some broadcasters do it some have uh, sort of a number in their in their charts indicating some sort of chance particularly when they're talking about forecast three four five days in advance but i think to be fair the broadcast meteorological profession hasn't fully grasped that nettle yet and dealt with it successfully are there other lessons to be learned from from other public facing areas but perhaps besides bookmakers <laughs> I think there's huge lessons that will be learned from the current situation uh, globally with the pandemic where the risks uh, and the different ways of assessing the risk of, of catching the coronavirus or indeed of keeping yourself safe from it uh, are difficult to perceive and there's so many different ways in which uh, we don't understand, most of us don't understand the ins and outs of how viruses are transmitted. You know, we have some broad understanding of it and there's all this coughing and breathing and blah, blah, blah. And we have various strategies to avoid um, transmission through those things. Uh, but I think, again, we're not terribly good at, uh, particularly when there's many elements to the risk, uh, at assessing them. And unfortunately, uh, uh, and this is a very human trait, when it comes to things which are severe, uh, and that could be either a health or, or a meteorological type of event, we're dreadful at risk, uh, I think. we, When we get afraid, our ability to assess risk goes out the window. And that's why trying to assess and communicate risk in a sensible way during really severe situations is extremely difficult because once fear enters into the equation, I think people behave irrationally and their ability to assess risk 
is is very much diminished. To come back, Gerald, to to something you said earlier about the fact that um, broadcast meteorologists perhaps are not yet sufficiently representing uh, probability in their in their broadcasts, and I guess one of the frustrations from the scientific community side is that, of course, you know the numerical weather prediction that that feeds the data that goes into weather forecasts spends a huge amount of computer time, etc., generating uh, very many descriptions of the forecast going forward in these ensembles. Yet somehow we don't manage to see any of that on on the public uh, broadcasts. And can I just push you a little bit more on how can we change this? How can we get the broadcast meteorologists to to somehow reflect some of that information? In a sense, so that they can provide a, a notion of reliability of the forecast or the confidence that they have in their forecasts yeah i think one element is obviously education helping broadcast meteorologists to understand ensemble products more comprehensively but there are limitations to the actual medium as well if you're doing a tv broadcast of 90 seconds or 120 seconds which are the typical durations one and a half minutes or two minutes it's not going to be possible to get a very comprehensive or detailed description of an ensemble product you know you can possibly at best say well there's two options here this weather system could go this way and this would be the result or could go that way and that would be the result or you could say we're a bit uncertain about exactly the track of this you can perhaps develop graphics to have say a a cone of, of effect and of course that's done very successfully with tropical cyclones it's not so usual with mid-latitude depressions and so on so maybe we need better tools from our graphic systems and maybe we need to understand better how to translate the pretty complex information that comes out of ensemble systems into something which is clear and succinct one of the things that the science community looks at are are things called reliability diagrams where they try and assess uh, you know the frequency of an event versus the uh, probability from the forecast of that event occurring. And in a sense, this would translate into language of the broadcast meteorologists saying how confident they are in, in the forecast. You know, that they, uh, sometimes uncertainty tends to have the feel of a, of a negative, whereas confidence uh, provides a more positive uh, angle on this. What do you think about that? I think that's certainly one way to go. It depends a lot on the trust that the viewer has in the person presenting the forecast because when it comes to actually the viewer or the the listener, they invest a lot of human trust, if you like, in the person that's delivering something. And we all do that. We do it with politicians and we do it with economic correspondents and newsreaders and so on. There are people whose words we trust. Uh, So having somebody who is both... um, I suppose, knowledgeable enough from a meteorological point of view to understand the levels of confidence and also a good enough broadcaster uh, uh, to establish high levels of trust with the people means that they saying that they have confidence or they don't have confidence, even if they don't go into the background, can carry a lot of weight with people. Of course, we also find that those who are more regular users of weather broadcast information, farmers, fishers and so on, they tend to have a better grasp of the reliability of forecasts and they understand that they don't always work out uh, as expected but that you know on balance they will be better than than having nothing but a, a person who's just looking at a single event like a big football match or a wedding or something like that and the forecast isn't perfect for them is going to have a different concept of reliability i think 
Gerald, you mentioned trust, and uh, nearly everywhere in the world, national Met services are almost always responsible for issuing national weather warnings. But what would happen if forecasts were issued by a number of sources, uh, including warnings, uh, including the private sector, which might be contradictory? How would you manage such a situation? It's a difficult one, and of course it's a a situation which is faced by a number of countries where the National Met Service, either by legislation or or by tradition, is not granted that exclusive uh, right, if you like, to to issue warnings. I think it's... pretty obvious that clarity is important when it comes to severe weather. It's important that there be a clear message and that that it should be a single message. And I do believe in the single authoritative voice policy that the WMO pushes is the correct policy. The problems, I suppose, are more acute in countries where the National Met Service is not fully equipped or well-equipped to issue good quality warnings because of of their level of development. But the problem is also there in very much in, in the... Um, developed world because you have so many sources of information and so many people who can put stuff out uh, there in all sorts of internets and blogs and so on at at very little cost to themselves. Um, Cost may be part of it and and the legal responsibility for warnings may be one way of doing it, either a a formal legal instrument of government or or just the question of of insurance and and litigation of somebody who issues a warning which is issued on, on the basis of a very little actual information or very little capability uh, and it turns out to be wrong but I do think that that's one of the major challenges we've got between the public and private sector uh, in meteorology in the years to come in defining the appropriate roles for both uh, and those areas which are exclusively one exclusive the other are those where I think both public and private can operate together in some sort of complementary manner. So I, I, I guess the I know that the National Meteorological Services and the WMO are uh, clear about the need for a single, as you say, a single voice, a single authoritative voice on on weather warnings. But I I wonder if, well, two sort of subsidiary questions would be, do you think the public could get confused as to what is a warning and what is just a weather forecast? I mean, it it seems as though there's a a sort of... uh, transition there between a normal weather forecast and a warning and what if they don't necessarily know where those that information's coming from they don't necessarily know that the national meteorological service has is behind that uh, weather warning or behind that authoritative uh, weather forecast i i wonder I, from the public's point of view how do you think they they can manage that situation or cope with it I think the presentation of warnings is important and it's an area where good communication is essential and uh, certainly in in Ireland as in the UK and in a lot of other European countries and also in the US and so on in most developed countries there are procedures around the issue of warnings and there's various language and even visuals which are associated with warnings to distinguish and discriminate them from forecasts so we have uh, our green, yellow, orange, red type of uh, presentation, which is widespread across Europe now and is being adopted by more and more countries, which I think is a very strong way of conveying that this is a warning and this is something you need to think about in a different way to thinking just about forecasts. But uh, having said that, it is still difficult sometimes to get the word across. Uh, Again, in UK and Ireland, we've started this storm naming a scheme which is another mechanism of just highlighting from a good communications point of view 
what is a potential severe weather event, in this case wind or and or rain. Now, the second part of your question I've forgotten, so I'll ask you to repeat it. Well, it, it's just that if, if uh, the National Meteorological Service doesn't necessarily have a high profile in terms of yeah. the warning, yeah, do you yeah, think yeah, the public still has the trust in those warnings? I think it's something that has to be built up and earned by the National Met Service, and this is part of why I think it's important that National Met Services actually are visible on a day-to-day basis in issuing forecasts through their national media, through their websites or whatever, because the public won't have trust in somebody who appears out of nowhere as the official spokesman for the ministry for blah, blah, blah. That's just another person. And depending on your view of, of government in whatever country you are, you might actually have very low levels of trust in them. But if the person delivering is somebody who you're familiar with from daily delivery of weather forecasts, you're more likely to have a high level of trust. And this is why I think it's important that Met Services retain a space uh, in the daily presentation of weather forecasts, as well as being responsible for issuing warnings, because I think one complements and supports the other. So, Gerald, when it comes to using warnings. Uh, Work in disaster management suggests that it's a myth that people immediately take protective actions when they receive a warning. In reality, a lot of times wasted looking for supportive actions that confirm the warnings. Uh, This is called uh, milling by many, and it's the time people take to, to create new social realities. Do you think there are ways to improve the broadcast messages to reduce these milling delays? It's a difficult one. These days, of course, there are so many different uh, dissemination pathways through through the internet, through blogs and so on. So it's important that when a warning is issued by a national Met service that it has covered all the bases, that it has also the information on its website, on its app, uh, it had sent it out on its media platforms, whatever they might be, because that does provide those alternative uh, places where the person who listens to the radio or watches the TV can go and look and convince themselves that yes this is something I need to take seriously. Also of course it can help to provide more detail, it can provide a map perhaps or it can provide a graphic or or some greater text than you would have in a radio or TV broadcast so that somebody can get that greater detail and hopefully can get uh, more convinced that this is something that they need to take seriously. Of course there are people who no matter how many warnings you send them or how many ways you deliver it to them will not take a warning seriously, that's unfortunate but uh, we always have to deal with that. But you're quite right that we need to look at, for effective transmission of warnings, how we can transmit them through all of the media that are available to us and also to use uh, news media and so on as well to, to back up what we're doing. WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. This um, sort of leads me on to... Uh, at my my final uh, point that I wanted to raise with you, and and that is that, I think what you said is that that national meteorological services, particularly for the point of view of weather warnings, need to have uh, you know presence on the internet, for example, um, and and that's that's an important aspect of this this problem. But of course, the private sector that spends quite a bit of time developing apps and and other tools to use on smartphones and social media may regard that as competition and maybe even unfair competition. And I wondered what you felt about that and whether the situation, particularly, say, in many developing countries where 
such a presence on the internet could seem like a low priority, how it might be coped with there? It's a difficult one. I think a Met service, if it's to provide a service to its uh, its public, and I come back to the fact that Met services are primarily supported through the public purse, and I think the public have a right to expect a service uh, in return for that uh, money which is given, if you like, from the public, from the taxpayer, then a Met service needs to use whatever method of communication is appropriate for the people whom, to whom it's speaking. And, of course, 100 years ago that was newspapers and then it became radio and then it became TV and now it's the internet and the apps and so on. So we can't, in the public sector, we can't ignore the fact that so many people are now getting their information through online media, although, in fact, in severe weather situations it's also true that people tend to revert more to the traditional media but I think we can't ignore that. So I do think there's a, an onus on Met services to put out their information on websites and to develop apps. But those, I think, are primarily to be focused uh, on the general public forecast, if you like, or perhaps on regional forecasts for large regions, uh, maybe for fishers or maybe for farming, uh, some large areas of expertise. Uh, the private sector typically has many opportunities in more niche areas to develop tailored products which it can deliver then through much more specialised apps and and that's going to be interesting to see as as we go through, you know, apps become more normal I suppose in, in the developing world um, of course one of the problems with the internet and with apps is it can be sometimes difficult to know where the underlying information is coming from and the quality of that underlying information because you can dress up bad information or weak information in a very nice petticoat if you like by putting nice colors and designs on it and most viewers and users won't know the difference between that and an app which is comes from from high quality information so there is an onus on met services to use that higher quality information at their disposal to put out a service and if the private sector can can build on that then then good luck so so joe could you also say uh, a, a few words about the role of the broadcast meteorologist in education yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, certainly in the US, where, where the, the weather broadcast market is very, very different to Europe and, in fact, very different to almost everywhere else in the world because it's a very large market uh, and all of the, the markets, the individual broadcast markets are, are quite well defined around major cities and towns and regions and so on. Uh, there is a major element of education in the work of the broadcast meteorologist. So typically in the morning they'll be going out to visit a school or something like that or talking to a group before going into the studio for the afternoon and evening to do their broadcasting. That's not typically the same in Europe where broadcasters, if they're working for National Met Services, are probably spending their time in the forecast office when they're not in the studio. And in the private sector, maybe they're just in the studio all the time. But I think it's important. It's important to support... Uh, teachers at all levels in providing both material and providing a presence in classrooms and also not just to, to youngsters but education to adults uh, through talking at uh, seminars and going to meetings of be they farmers or be they fishers or be they whatever and discussing with them what you know about the weather and then listening to what they understand and don't understand and wish to understand better there's a huge element of, of public education in that and one I think that Met services don't really put enough emphasis on because a well educated public will be an appreciative public of good quality services um, I remember once 
reading something about chefs, for example, in the, who really said that we need gourmets actually to, to help us to up our game. We need people who really want to push us so that we create better dishes and better food. And in a sense, it's a bit the same with the weather audience. We need an educated and discerning weather audience if we're to be pushed into providing better quality services and better quality meteorology. I, I guess just one one final point would be that you sort of say that the National Meteorological Services have a role in public broadcasting for, you know, the public weather forecast and to large areas of, of industry. But, of course, there are many examples where public weather forecasts is provided via a, a private company now and, and not the, and not the uh, National Meteorological Service. So even in, you know, if you like the, the general public weather forecast on, on TV and radio, Quite often it's delivered by the private sector now. And that's fine, but I don't think the fact that the private sector can go into an area and make a market out of it necessarily means the public sector should withdraw from that, which is one philosophy which I've seen quoted in some places and not necessarily in the context of meteorology. Uh, if the public sector has a responsibility, which I believe it does, to provide good quality information to the taxpayer in return for the support it gets, um, then... It should do that. Now, it can do that, of course, in partnership with the private sector, in partnership with private sector broadcasters. Uh, I mean, most Met services will be using some services from the private sector in terms of their broadcasting with graphic systems, with broadcast systems and so on. So the public sector rarely can do everything itself. Uh, but I think the public sector needs to retain its role in providing visible and good weather forecast and warning services um, and work with the private sector where that's appropriate. So, so given all that we've, we've discussed, uh, what do you think is the future of broadcasting? Uh, I think we've, we've touched on the opportunity for cooperation between public and private, but do you think there's a, an opportunity for greater co actual collaboration between the public, private and, and actually the academic sectors also? that would lead to co-production uh, of uh, broadcast information? I do, and I think that that will be very necessary uh, and will be beneficial to Met Services. I mean, one of the aspects of my own career, having worked in broadcasting, uh, and, and the manner of working was that we had a, a, an office within the TV centre in Dublin, which was on the far side of the city from where the National Met Service was, uh, so on some days I'd go to work to the forecast office in the National Met Service and other days I'd go to work to the TV centre and work there. And you couldn't imagine two such different environments, you know, both culturally and everything, the sort of people who work in broadcasting and so on. And that opened my eyes to things that I wouldn't have known or thought about uh, or realised had I spent all of my working career sitting in a forecast office in a National Met Service. So broadening out the... Um, collaboration between National Met Services and others, be they broadcasters or be they people in the private sector, allows National Met Services to become more capable because it, it, it teaches them about other aspects of, of business and of broadcasting and so on, which they're not going to learn uh, in their meteorological courses in university or indeed at their National Met Services. And it helps them to do their job more effectively and, and be better at it. So I really strongly believe that good partnership is beneficial for both sides because the private sector also uh, can learn, I think, from some of the ways that National Met Services work. There's benefits in all of us stepping outside our, our particular areas of expertise 
and working in close collaboration with others who come from different backgrounds, we all learn from it. Uh, thanks very much, Gerald. That's uh, been very enlightening. Uh, Alan, any other thoughts? No, just just to say thanks, Gerald. That was really good, and I, I think we've uh, we've had a real insight into the world of broadcast meteorology today. Thanks ever so much. It's been my pleasure to talk with you, and uh, yeah, I hope it's interesting for the, for the listeners for all. Thanks. Weatherpod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. It's time for another Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So, David, what have you got this month? Uh, Valentina Gregorian, a colleague from the Armenian Service for Hydrometeorology, shared an interesting weather impact which took place in Jumri, Armenia, in July of this year. Tell us more, David. Uh, between 4 and 5pm on the 13th of July, 81 millimetres of rain fell on the city, which is twice the monthly normal rainfall. The rain was accompanied by long-lasting hail, it was the combined effect of rain and hail that created the biggest impact. Hail appears to have blocked drains, which contributed to the rapid rise in water level. The hailstones coalesced into large masses in the resulting floodwater, turning the streets into something reminiscent of an Arctic waterway, with cars floating amid ice flows. Houses were also flooded, and as the water retreated, tons of ice were left stranded inside homes. In one report, one home was filled with a two-metre-deep block of ice. Wow, that's incredible. So what do you think was the likely cause of this unusual and extreme weather event? The likely cause is believed to be a cyclone that developed over the Black Sea before crossing Turkey and moving into Armenia. Deep convection was observed on their meteorological radar starting at about 3pm, with cloud tops reaching 12 to 14 kilometres with reflectivity of 50 dBZ or more, which is indicative of heavy rain and hail. Just how unusual is this sort of situation? While summer thunderstorms and hail are relatively common in this mountain city, which sits at an altitude of 1,500 metres, Valentina said that the service considered this to have been an unprecedented event. It is more usual to have relatively stable conditions during the summer, with a dry, hot air pushing up from the tropics and no, no cyclonic activity. Incidentally, severe weather also impacted Turkey on the 12th of July, with flash flooding and landslides ca causing numerous fatalities. What other extreme weather events causing floods have there been recently? Lots. Severe weather is causing floods in Ethiopia, India, Greece, Somalia, South Korea, Sudan, Thailand, Vietnam and many other places. Mumbai has recorded its highest August rainfall since 1974 and more than 13 million people in India have been affected by the floods, with more than 770 dead as a result. This on top of an already difficult situation with COVID-19. It's clear that flooding is a major problem in many parts of the world. What actions are being taken, do you think, to address the impacts of these extreme weather events? Not enough. It all begs the question, are we doing enough in water resource management and disaster risk management to address floods, and in the wider sense, both floods and droughts? We'll return to this topic in a later episode when we'll discuss managing hydroclimatic risks. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you liked it. Alan and I will be back next month with another special guest to discuss a key topic in the global weather enterprise. Plus, of course, wow, that's interesting. Wow!